Real Talk listeners, listen up. We are continuing our series of, gosh, talking through making sure people are getting to the point from a leadership perspective with HR. And so we are continuing through this process. Today, we're talking about how do you prepare for these roles that you're getting into? We have so much on the docket. We literally have a leadership example that we found on the internet. Michelle's still here with us, like literally still energized and hot about this topic. So she has so much passion about it. We have three tips to also talk through with you as well as a result. And we even have a book reference for you. Like all of this is going on in this episode because this is such a critical component as you're growing, you know, or or as leaders are growing through the organization, depending on if it's you or someone you're a business partner with. So Michelle, like, let's talk through, like, why do people think they don't have to prepare for these roles? It just blows my mind that you think you could just like wake up one day and be like, I'm a CEO. Oh, I'm a governor. Like, and just all of a sudden not have to prepare like to be in these roles. Like, it just blows my mind completely. And I think like, it's just, I don't get it. I don't get it. It's, I can't, I'm speechless with words. I listened last time that was me. So I'm glad that um, it's going around. It's clearly contagious. You know, the thing that is, is true of every organization, you and I have both walked into a lot of organizations where we've had to tell people they were not doing something the best way or the right way, particularly as it relates to preparing leaders, right? And the thing is, and I always tell them, I'm like, this is not a you problem. This is a world problem. We put people in roles because they did their previous role successfully. And we do it at all levels. It does not matter. We do it at all levels. Yeah. And so we do that with the C-suite as well. There is, um, if you also Google the best, So I told you in the last episode, you can do worst leadership of blank and put in a year. You can also do best leadership moments of blank. And you can hear some incredible things from some executives and leaders that are known and recognized worldwide. So it's not everyone. Maria said this in our last episode, but there are enough of them. There are also enough small links, small budding entrepreneurial businesses that I suspect there will be even more. You often, someone is the founder of an organization and they're not the right person when that organization becomes dramatically bigger. And I'm not suggesting they shouldn't keep the business they created. I am suggesting that they need to get some help to help them be ready for the size of the organization that they've created. Right now, Maria, you and I, we have a budding business, right? It's getting some flowers. It's really fun. If we were 10 times the size we are right now, I would have invested in my development to help me be prepared for that. And I don't just mean your brand. I know I talk a lot when we talk about branding, but I mean all of it like how to communicate your strategy, all of those pieces, they don't just happen because you get a title. I remember joking with leaders in executive workshops or in leadership workshops. 
I remember joking with him and saying, your boss or the person you report to thinks that there's some kind of magic wand. And the minute they give you a title, it's like, boom, you have all the knowledge and skills. It doesn't work that way. If your communication was bad before, it's going to be bad regardless of your title. If you were bad at inspiring people before, you're going to be bad regardless of your title. If you were bad at strategizing, you're still going to be bad. One of the examples I pulled up that I think is a great example of a valuable development plan would have helped. He was the founder of his organization. It grew significantly faster than he had prepared. It's Dish Network, right? And there's um, an actual quote from him where he compared his corporate strategy to a very famous Seinfeld episode. And in that Seinfeld episode, which guys, most of the Seinfeld episodes, you never knew what was happening. But in this particular episode, you really had no idea what the episode was about until the last two minutes of the show. So you were like 28 minutes into this thing. And finally, you're like, oh, now it came together. And so when he was asked about his company's strategic direction, he compared it to that episode, talked about the episode and said, I guess you'll have to wait and see when it comes together. That's great. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. I'm going to step back. We've met lots of people who started their own businesses, founders of their own businesses. And a lot of times to be a founder or someone creative like that, you do think conceptually in your head and not always out on paper. And that is fine. That is the reason you're a rock star. However, when you are talking to 10,000 employees that you want to move in the same direction that you're moving, they have to have the words. And so this is one of those places where a really great resource would have helped him leverage his creativity and his intangible vision in a way to pull people forward. That's all he needed was he needed a good word person to link those two things, not change who he was. And so we use this as an example because this is a great example of you're going to have to invest in yourself. If you think that you are ready for the C level or you are ready for public service in the role of a politician, you need to put some money where your mouth is and get your act together because you are basically asking other people to do what you want them to do. So this is a core piece of leadership for me that I feel like I over-explain it probably, um, but it's important to me. Okay, so as a leader, your job is to get other people to do what you want. That's your job. If you are the founder of an organization, your job is to somehow convince other people to do the work that gets you the product, the customers, the solutions, the service, whatever it is. If you were a politician, your job is to convince a voting group of people to align with your policies or your 
principles. That's at least the idea of it. That is your job. Now, here's the problem with your job. Their action is dependent on how they receive your message, not how you give it. So you might stand up and have all of the best intentions. This founder of Dish, he might have been like, I want them to truly understand me that I'm creative and I make stuff happen and I have this incredible vision. He may have truly felt like he was going to help people see who he was and relate to him. But it doesn't matter what your intention is as a leader. It matters how your message is received by the people who have to do the work. And in this particular case, they saw it as you having no idea what you were doing. You couldn't articulate it. So that means you probably didn't even know, right? So let's talk about how you can invest in your own development. (laughs) Yeah, Michelle, I think there's like three critical points that we need to discuss with those that are either a business partners to leaders on the rise or executive C-suites, or B, if you are a founder or an executive leader listening in or someone on the rise into an executive position, I think you need to stop. You need to get out of your own way. Like I said, in our last podcast, I've seen, and it doesn't happen too often, I will say, Many executives that I talk to are very humbling and they have uh, great intentions and uh, a vision, a strategic vision on how they want their companies to continue and thrive and how they want to be perceived. Right. But occasionally you get that and not occasionally, there's a good amount of C-suite executives that have really large egos and they grow into them. And literally sometimes it's as easy as just stepping into the role and they don't see it. They really don't. I'll tell you, I had an executive leader tell me like, Hey, uh, do you think you're busier than I am? And it's interesting because Sometimes people can be busier than an executive at times, like they can work more hours than them. It doesn't matter, like the time piece doesn't necessarily matter in someone's role. It's they get into positions based on their experience of being able to conduct that role. So your experience level in that position, your role and responsibility is what defines you in that role not how much time it takes you to complete your job. Just because you're a C-suite doesn't mean you do more work than a call center representative who's working 80 hours overtime, seven days a week. Like that is just mind blowing that executives get into a role and they think that individuals that are shaping their organization are, you know, less important or valuable so I think there's there's these critical components. And there's so many times, Michelle, I'll tell you behind the scenes where I've spoken with it, like I've listened in on executive comments or spoken, you know, to them and they are completely opposite than the PR message that they send out. So, yes, from what you mentioned before, um, there's so many people that get so I, I like to say starstruck, you know, like you like get so excited. You meet somebody, you're like, oh my gosh, the C-suite's coming. And then like you mentioned, like 
leaders are like frantically cleaning up their retail locations or making sure all their, you know, I's are dotted and their T's are crossed in the in the process of it all. They get so nerve wracked. But when you're sitting there sometimes with an executive, sometimes what you see is not necessarily what the constituents see, right? Or the, you know, if you're a politician or, you know, the, the employees in an organization, if you're an executive, they see a different persona and they see someone like more on a pedestal. Whereas sometimes like this person could literally like feel like you listening right now could feel exact opposite of the words that your PR and HR team and marketing team presents for you. And it happens, unfortunately. So it's it's super interesting. It's very interesting. So a couple of things that you said remind me of a thought, you know, I'm good at forgetting stuff. So remind me to flash back to what you said about just remind me servant leadership in a minute. So what I actually wanted to say is a lot of times that mixed message will happen because you allow HR or communications or marketing to speak for you. I think there's a balance, like even in in politics, a lot of politicians will have speech writers that do the writing for them. And when you are not part of that decision or those people that take on that responsibility are not crystal clear how you want to show up, you end up with that conflict. And um, an organization that we've worked with in the past, that was the problem. I, I actually remember being told, I was like, well, let's go get a quote from the CEO. And I was told, we'll just make up a quote that makes sense and we'll go tell him that he said it. You know what? That's a great way to make you sound brilliant all the time. And it is a great way to create what Maria is talking about, which is that misalignment where when you show up in person, it doesn't come across as the same. We're not suggesting that you not be you. Going back to that example at the start of the show, you are in this role for you were in your previous role for a reason. You're stepping into this C role for a reason, we hope. We're just saying there's a different level of responsibility and that you have to show up different. That's all we're saying. The other thing I want to flash back to you that you talked about was it reminded me of servant leadership where you were talking about the CEO that said, do you think you work harder than me, right? And Two things. I mean, and in both cases, it was a C-suite professional that did both of these situations. One was a CEO and the other was a CHRO, so human resources. You'd think that'd be better. You'd think, but you're wrong. So the CEO, and it's, it's probably the thing that stands out the most for me as it relates to, Maria, you know him, Brian Phillips. Yeah, great executive. Great, amazing executive um, part of FedEx office. Brian Phillips would, unless it was impossible, every single week, he would come to a first level leadership class for two hours. Sometimes he would stay and have lunch with them, but he would come just to ask them questions, talk to them about the business, the state of the business. Every single week, he would invest that in literally frontline leaders every week. 
And I worked with a guy at the time who, um, military background, so he's super polished and put together and hierarchical. I mean, like, hi, that's probably not even a word. I just made it up. He believed in the chain of command. So every time Brian would come down, and you'll notice I use the name Brian. I don't even know if he remembers me. He actually remembers a lot of people, so he might. Yay. But he wasn't Mr. Phillips. He was Brian. And every time Brian would come down, my peer, Drew, would say, hey, boss, what's up? And Brian would say, not the boss. You're the boss. I work for you. And Brian really, he believed that. He meant that when he said it. We talked and trained leaders on servant leadership because he believed he worked to make everybody else capable of doing their job. And when he found out things happened wrong in the middle, so between him and a frontline employee, something was not executed the way it was supposed to be, he would jump in immediately and fix it. Like he didn't play. He believed in servant leadership. And then there was um, a human resource person that I worked with, a C-suite, who refused to even let us use the phrase servant leadership. She didn't even bother to learn what servant leadership was about. I think a lot of people get caught off guard by the phrase servant in servant leadership. It doesn't mean that I have to bring your meal to you. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the, the fact that I work to make it easier for you to be successful. It's inverting that pyramid that we all see where the frontline employees at the bottom and the CEOs at the top. It's flipping that on its axis where the C-suite works for the leaders, the senior executive team to make sure they can do their job. Senior executive team works for mid-level managers so they can do their job. Managers work for employees so they can do their job. That's the entire idea. Well, it's not the entire idea, but that's it in a nutshell. And she wouldn't even let us use the word because she refused in her position to be a servant to anyone. But that's what you are. You serve the people that work for you. If you're a politician, you serve your state or your city or your town, whatever level, or your country, whatever level you're at. So sorry. It just, I, you said I was still on fire and I am. <laughs> so Michelle, we have three tips for um, you as a HR professional to really instill into your business leaders or uh, for you as a business leader um, to prepare for your role. One is to get clear on who you are and who you want to show up. Let's talk about that. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Can I get a savior of your choice? Yeah. (laughs) Savior of your choice, people. Yeah, let's talk about that one. Yeah. So why is it so critical? Like it's almost like when when we say get clear on who you are and who you want to show up or get or have your leaders get clear on this as they're growing and developing, it almost seems like they have to have their own mission, vision, and values individually for themselves. Is that really how they're going to prepare for these next roles? Because we've talked about mission, vision, and values in every single segment. 
But like, yeah, get clear on who you are. Like you need to have clarity. Like there needs to be some sort of little like motto that you stand by and who you're going to be as you grow up in an organization or as they grow up. So I do think if you are, if you are all in to that, go for it as a family unit. My family, we've even started, um, we've even, we have an ongoing values discussion where like one of our values as a family unit is uh, do good recklessly. And it came from um, something that we saw on social media. Everything has a story. Something that we saw on social media where a lady uh, gave someone who was homeless no, she paid for the groceries. They didn't have an, enough money. And it was like $23. And it was like milk and eggs and bread and stuff. And so she just paid for it for them. And when she was telling her mom, her mom goes, you were so stupid. She she totally tricked you. And then someone else posted on a comment to, she was like, I can't believe my mom yelled at me for trying to help someone. And someone posted on it. And she said that her dad always said, if someone is begging you in need of something and you say, no, that's on you. If they're lying and they're going to use the money for drugs, that's on them. And when you die, you're going to be judged on yours, not on theirs. And so the idea that came from that was his dad would say, or her dad would just say, do good recklessly. So to answer your question, do you need values, mission, vision, my personal opinion is yes. I think that's how you figure out yourself. But I do think when you're talking about your leadership brand, you can simplify it a little bit. But there are probably three things that I would say you have to have if you truly want to walk your beliefs or talk your beliefs. And the first thing is kind of like, what is your purpose? Like, what is your big, like, what, what is that big, big thing that you want to be known for? There is a lady that I follow who is, she's freaking, I love her and I'm going to screw up her last name and I am super sorry. Her name is Martha Krejcik. And if I screwed it up, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But the reason I bring her up is like her big thing, that thing that drives and motivates everything she does is to end poverty. That big thing, right? And it doesn't have to be that monumentous, but it does have to be something that compels you. Has to be your big why? Why are you in this? Why do you want to keep climbing the corporate ladder? What are you doing? That big why? So I'd say you've got to figure out what that is for you. The next thing that I would say you need to be able to put words to is what is your belief of leadership? What is your leadership philosophy? It's amazing how few people can explain what their leadership philosophy is. And it doesn't have to be a word. It doesn't have to be crazy, elaborate. It could just be a cut or it doesn't have to be a sentence is what I meant. It could just be a couple of words. Um, I worked with an organization once where their leadership philosophy was 
inspire, learn. And there was one other word, but I can't remember it at this point, right? And so leaders should be inspiring. They should be willing to learn as well as to teach others. So just define what your belief of leadership is because you're setting the example for every single leader under you. And then the last thing that you need to do could be a super simple exercise. Download a bunch of adjectives and circle the ones that you wish people would think about when they think about you. I would say that one of the words that I hope people circle when they think about me is supportive. It could be any version of that word. You could go supportive. You could go great listener. You could circle advisor, whatever that is. I would also hope that people circle the word encouraging or some version of that word when they thought about me. So start by just identifying what is it that you wish people thought about when they thought about you. And then when you have that narrowed down to a handful of words, that's when you can start saying, is that really the way I show up? Is that the way I show up on social media? Is that the way I show up in my emails, in face-to-face meetings, in one-on-ones? And do my actions support someone who is supportive? Or, like, for me, at the end of my last job, I would say it wasn't supportive. Because every time somebody would call me, I'd be like, I have a, sorry, I can't meet you at that time. I have a call. I have a call. I have a call. I have a call. Like, I was always too busy to do anything to support them. So I would say the last three months of my previous job, supportive would not have been the word. So looking back, I should have had better control over that. No, like there was no controlling that schedule. Forget that comment. Um, not, not, I'm not owning that. That was not on me. <laughs> um, it's not on anybody else, but I'm not owning it. I'm just saying. But I can definitely see how my actions at that time The fact that I was running behind a lot, that I was overbooked, that I had to cancel meetings, my actions did not support that word. So those are the, those are the honest things you're going to have to get real with yourself during this if you haven't done it already. So to summarize three things at minimum, you need a big why you've got to know what your leadership philosophy is and you need to define a handful of things that you want to be known for. And it's interesting. So like I'm in the process of recruiting for roles right now and and I get asked this type of question all the time. Tell me a little bit, like explain your leadership style or explain your leadership philosophy and things like that, right? Because people who work for me, it's important for individuals to know who they're going to go work for. And so I actually leverage what other people have said and feedback about myself as conversation, right? And so leverage that too and get feedback from your current direct reports on how you've been leading, that might actually make you want to change some things or it may make you want to then continue with that and drive your philosophy around that. The other part is for recruiters, you know, executive recruiters or just any recruiters who are recruiting for leadership positions that are listening in here, it's critical for you to have some of these questions lined up for leaders. 
I think it's important to ask not so much about, you know, obviously you need to know if this person's capable of leading this department or this role, but also I think it's critical to find out what type of leader is going to be coming into your organization and how that branding is going to be perceived from, you know, individuals in the organization or again, constituents uh, or, or whatnot, right? In in a political area or arena. In addition, if you're taking a look, um, you know, we have obviously a large, uh, a large passion around learning and development. If you're a, a, a trainer or in talent development, um, these are you know organizational development. If you are in some sort of format within an organization, I think when you take a look at your leadership training, your your growth opportunity for your organization, your bench development courses, focus on these initiatives too, because it doesn't matter how low or high a leader is in an organization, they all need to prepare these as they're growing in their roles and have some sort of easy discussion around it. I remember, you know, we had so many times where, you know, we conducted some trainings on like literally bringing people physically into an elevator and making them do an elevator speech. Like, okay, we're pushing the button, go, you know, and it's, (laughs) these are the types of exercises that we can do in learning and development to help our leaders better develop in some of these areas. It really is as simple as what you said is ask yourself, how have I shown up in the past? What if people said about me and it needs to start at the beginning. Like even to your point, we did a a leadership branding exercise at the managing director level. I'm going to pause because a lot of times we use titles here and titles are subjective depending on the size of your organization. A managing director at a, a company with just a few hundred people, it's a different scope of responsibility than a managing director at 100,000 people. And this was a larger company. But what I realized in hindsight or looking back is that we should have done that significantly earlier for those folks, probably when they jumped to their first multi-unit leadership role. Um, Because at that point, they already had that history and that baggage that you're talking about, Maria, when you said there could be things that you don't want to do or you should stop doing. Um, So we ran into a lot of that where they weren't living the way they wanted to. So the earlier you do it, the better. Yeah. So start focusing on those initiatives. So the second thing, obviously, invest in development, Michelle. So we're talking about learning and development, but not every organization has the right L&D or talent development individuals. And sometimes leaders need an external source outside of their organization. Let's talk through why an executive coach or a coach, if you are just growing in leadership, is a good personal investment. So um, you use the phrase personal investment, and I am a fan of that specifically versus the organization getting them for you. Now, if your organization is great and they're willing to pay for a coach for you, you need to pause and you need to understand what the organization is asking that coach to do. So Maria, as as people or listeners, Maria and I uh, both do coaching. 
And we do it personally where an individual calls and hires us. Um, but we also do it for organization, could be group coaching, or it could be coaching an executive or a leader specifically. When an organization hires you, there is a chance that that organization is putting some expectations on the results of that relationship. And you, as the individual being coached, need to be aware of those things. That should be a part of the discussion up front. It shouldn't be your coach telling you that. Your coach, if they are good at what they do, your coach will help whoever your boss or whoever hired the executive coach will help you facilitate a conversation with that leader where you will talk about, here are the things that I want you to get out of this coaching session. What are some of the things you want to get out of this coaching session? The reason that that is important to understand the distinction is because sometimes that coach might be swaying towards helping you improve performance or strategy or some sort of business growth where where you're trying to pull them to is helping you with something else. So just make sure there's some, it can be done. It's done all the time. I'm not saying it isn't. I just, all parties need to know when the company pays for that investment, the company expects a return on that investment. Um, And that equates to your performance, okay? But as an individual, when you hire a coach, we're there to help you. Um, I recently worked with a senior leader through conversations. He wanted to find out where he would be most happy. But as we continued our conversation, so it started with, Help me figure out if I even want to stay here. And as we continued our conversations, it became help me make me like, help me like this job better. Um, So it was clear after multiple conversations, he didn't want to leave this role, but he wasn't happy right now. And so as someone that he hired individually, I was able to ebb and flow from what started with career coaching to what started with role coaching. Um, And we focused on some activities that would just help him enjoy his role better. The other thing, the other great thing about an external coach versus a coach within the organization, if you have hired the right one, we're not gonna lie to you. Okay, I wanna pause and I wanna be really clear about coaches because there's a lot of, This is another one of those rants that drives me crazy, Maria. There's a lot of misperception about what a coach is because we use that term as it relates to leaders within an organization as well. When we're talking about an external coach, let's get clear. I am not responsible for your results. You are a grown-ass adult. So, no, as your coach... I'm not resting my success on whether or not you get off your butt and do what I'm coaching you to do because that's on you. However, your coach should be someone who is equally supportive and accountable. So when you come to me because you're struggling with something and you don't know how to make it happen, 
absolutely, I should be there to try to help you find the right answers. But when you come to me with the same goal week after week and you've made no progress, that's when I'm going to have a slightly firm. Remember, your results are not my problem. Okay. So let's be clear. But I am going to have a firm conversation with you. And I'm going to say, doesn't seem like this is really important to you. Are you sure this is your goal? Because you're not doing anything. If you say, yep, it's my goal, I will keep going and pushing you every week. But I'm going to keep calling you out on your BS if you're not moving, right? So you need a coach that has the balance of the two. The next thing that's important when you find a coach is the coach should not give you the answers. A real coach helps you find the answers in the right place, unless you specifically have a situation where they know you're stuck and they know you need help. I actually had someone in a coaching session really upset, (laughs) shaking her hands over her head. And she's just like, can you just tell me what to do? I was like, I sure cannot. And the reason I cannot is because I don't have to live with your results. You do. I can, however, ask great questions like, what are the pros and cons if you do this? Or if you don't do it, which one is harder? Which one's easier to live with five years from now? So that's what you're looking for in a coach. And I have to tell you, it is well worth the investment. I am a coach and I have two coaches. I have two coaches and a therapist because it is good to have resources that you can talk to with zero judgment about what's happening. That's why I struggle with using the phrase coach is a leap as your supervisor being your coach. I struggle with that because your supervisor is always going to have some form of judgment about how you're performing or how what you're saying is going to impact your performance. So anyway, that's why I believe external is the way to go. Yeah, I think it's critical for politicians to also seek out a couple of of coaches themselves. Please. Also, uh, you know, PR person and whatnot, which leads us into the third and final tip. Surround yourself with advisors for different skills. You know, it's interesting. Every time uh, in the U.S., a politician, you know, like a president comes into to play, they literally get a bunch of new brand new advisors, right? Scrap whatever the old regime was. They add their own advisors, surround themselves with individuals. But do you notice not a single advisor is there? I mean, yeah, they get their PR person, but not a single advisor is employee relations, human relations, or a coach for them. Like, yes, super interesting. I find that intriguing every time that the leader of the free world, you know, kind of comes in and that is not an advisor. That's a critical component of their staff that they surround themselves with. But it is what it is. That's a rant that I could be on for days. I think it's critical too, when you take a look at a lot of startups, they don't always also start off with an HR person, you know, especially if they're like less than 50 individuals in a given location, they're like, oh, I don't have to worry about FMLA or type of these types of initiatives and compliance, right? But it, it should be one of the top advisors you surround yourself with. Like, it's super interesting. So 
you know, let's talk, Michelle, like, uh, let's talk a little bit about why it's critical for you to surround yourself with advisors with different skill sets. I love that you said different skill sets, because I think that is the critical piece. So I'm not going to credit this person for inventing advisors because they've been around a long time, but I am going to give this person credit for introducing me to the concept. Dr. Michael Watkins, who is the author of the book, The First 90 Days, it is um, a series of tools that we partnered with um, his training organization, Genesis Advisors, many, many, many years ago to use to prepare people to step into senior leadership roles. And so that was when I was first introduced to this concept. Now we ended up calling it, we, me and Diane Scarpa, ended up calling it your own personal board of directors because it was that cabinet, right? It's that cabinet of people, advisors that surround you that have your best interest at heart. So in this case, because it's personal, they genuinely have your best interest at heart, right? Now, the thing is, you have to decide who the cabinet members or the advisors are going to be. You have to think about your skills. You have to think about your gaps and you have to think about who you need. Might be surprising. I don't know. I mean, like everybody keeps going, you do a podcast. How can you be an introvert? I cannot stand small talk, networking, or socializing. Actually, I'm going to take back socializing. (laughs) Love socializing in the right environment. I can spend all day with people I care about having important conversations. But the minute we're talking about dozens and dozens of people talking about stupid crap like the weather, I'm just like, why am I wasting my time? So in every job I've ever had, I have surrounded myself with what I refer to as a connector. It's a term I use. You don't have to use the same term. You use your own terms. It's what I mean by you've got to pick your own. But I need a connector. My connector is always someone who is very social, know a ton of people. Maybe they've been with the organization for a long time. My connector is very rarely my political advisor, but sometimes they have been. So I have a connector who can just connect me with people. I have a political advisor who knows all of the sacred cows that I'm going to get in trouble if I make fun of them. Sometimes I'm going to make fun of them anyway, but at least (laughs) I know I'm going to get in trouble before it happens. I always need a technical advisor. I need what I call a devil's advocate. You're talking about surrounding yourself in politics by people that are like you. It always shocks me or founders looking for people who are like-minded individuals. It's human nature to surround yourself by people who are like-minded because it just makes everything feel easier. It makes conversations easier. When I'm in a room full of introverted people, it makes life easier because we can just sit there, read our own books, and nobody cares. Me and my niece, Brianna, we can be in the same room for three hours and not say two words to each other. And we both walk away going, hey, we just spent three hours together, even though we never said a word. Like, it's human nature 
to be around people that are like you. But when you are around people that are like you, it means no one ever challenges anything. And the world is full of adversity. This is actually a concept that I've employed in my life for a very long time. I would say the minute I moved into a leadership role is I have a friend who is always going to tell me the truth. If I'm stupid, she's going to be like, that is dumb. But if I'm arguing about something that is right, she's going to say, you're right. You need to stand your ground. When I was considering leaving corporate America, I've been taught, you you know, I've been talking about it. We've both been talking about it for years. And every time I would talk about leaving my job, she'd be like, you're not quit. You can't quit unless you have a job. You have bills. But remember, she tells me the truth, right? And so in my last job, when it was more than just unhappy, she was like, you need to leave that. That shit is crazy. And that was really between you and her. That was one of those moments where I was like, okay, maybe, maybe it's time if the two people I know are going to call, tell me the truth, are saying this. You need somebody that's going to support you. I also have a friend who started as a work colleague. That's where I found most of my advisors was through work. She'll call me and she'll, she'll say straight out, she'll be like, I just need you to tell me I'm right. Don't tell me the 15 ways that I might have done something wrong. And she'll tell me the whole story. And I'll be like, dude, I get it. I'd be upset too. I'm on your side right now. (laughs) We're going to figure this out. So you've got to find who those people are, but they can't be people who just yes you. I like the idea. We've talked about this on another episode, Maria. It dumbfounds me that. I don't get it because it's not the way I think. Maybe it's because I think adversarially in general, like I'm argumentative in general. But the idea of surrounding yourself with people who'll be like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Like I two podcasts ago, we had three podcasts ago, we had Jenny Blackwell on the podcast. Now, she and I do see things eye to eye a lot, a lot. But I remember the third time she goes, Michelle, I agree with you completely. I thought to myself, stop agreeing with me. Just have a difference of opinion. Um, I I was right. And I'm glad she agreed with me because the point was right. But like the idea that you would just want people to say yes to you is crazy. So find yourself, find yourself a political advisor, find yourself a call you on your shit advisor, find yourself a supportive person, find yourself a connector, a political advisor, I think I said that, a technical advisor, find yourself a group of people who whether you want to hear it or not, are going to do and say what is best for you in your career. Michelle, do they always have to be in the organization, these advisors? Um, exactly. So I want to make sure that we call that out for individuals listening or, or, or trainers that are helping coach leaders or soon-to-be leaders. They don't always have to be inside the organization. I've leveraged Michelle as my advisor at times. She's not in my organizations that I that I work for, but But yes, your advisors don't always have to be there. And especially if like 
people are C-suites, they're other than their other peers at C-suites, they're not going to have that. The other thing I want to also add while it's at the top of my mind is as a CEO, even though you have these advisors to go to that may not necessarily be peers of yours within an organization, obviously you're the top of the chain. What I will say is you also, in addition to your advisors who won't be yes people, you want to also think about how you instill a culture of understanding amongst your team to be okay with freely speaking with you um, as as direct reports, right? You're not going to make sustainable change within your organization if you create that culture of yes. And I've seen there's been a number of C-suite executives who refuse to argue with the CEO because they have this fear, level of fear of being replaced because it is, it's a it's a position of power that perception comes where you could be essentially replaced. Um, and so CEOs, you know, tend to yell at their individuals, curse at them, you know, tell them to get crap done. But at the end of the day, you know, there are a number of C-suites who refuse to argue because it's that corporate corporate politics that you play, you know, if I'm going to say corporate politeness, yeah, if I'm going to say yes all the time, I might be the next CEO candidate. So I'm going to sit there and kiss up and do whatever. It's not going to do you any justice, though. It's not going to make change for your sub department that you're supporting underneath that are expecting you to go to the CEO to make impact and change too. So not just your advisors, but as an as an executive or as a leader, creating that culture of yes amongst your direct reports is not going to be well well received below that level in the organization. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I feel like as the world becomes more globally connected, we start to see incredible advancements in other countries that sort of put to shame some of the work that is happening Uh, the same kind of work that is happening in America, right? But I think a huge piece of that is, Maria, it's what I call the culture of politeness and likeness, is that in Western culture, we've created corporate environments where we do surround ourselves with people who won't say no, who always say yes. We are polite and we we act like each other so that we can get along. And as a result of that, like you said, advancements don't happen. People don't think outside of the box because we're all thinking like each other. And other companies from other parts of the world are just leaps and bounds ahead of where uh, some of our companies are. And it is a result of us just doing the status quo and staying in our lanes doing the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of this, I hope everyone listening gets that these are the most three critical components, or at least the foundational components, I would say, in preparing for roles or helping your business leaders prepare for roles or soon to be business leaders prepare for roles within an organization. And our next discussion is going to talk through how you find the best advocate or HR business partner for you. So stay tuned, everyone. Take care. Bye.